This episode is dedicated to the one and only Ade Hogue. On October 27, 2021, at approximately 8.45 p.m., Ade was struck by a car in Chicago while riding his bike. Two days later, with no options for recovery, his family took him off life support while they surrounded him with love and affection. Ade was a dear friend of mine and beloved to many people, both in the design and lettering community, which is where I met him, and in the cycling community, which is where we bonded. He was an exceptional letterer and passionate cyclist. Several days before I recorded this episode with Bill, I had met with Bill and Ade and Jared of the Easton Mural Project to discuss putting together an event in May where Ade and I would fly to Pennsylvania, paint adjacent murals in Easton, and also ride Easton's beautiful scenery together. Several days after this interview was recorded, Ade was tragically and instantly gone. He was a beautiful example of what it means to really love cycling. He was in it first and foremost because he loved to ride. The freedom and joy he felt while he was on his bike was palpable. He tried every form of riding, owned many bikes, named all of them, rode thousands of miles a year, and even worked part-time at a bike shop for fun, even though he had a thriving career in lettering and design. But as a black man in the sport, Ade also understood that representation matters, that his presence in the sport was important, not just for others who looked like him, but for others who looked like him who aren't even born yet. He made such an impact on the sport while he was alive and on the people he rode with. I can only imagine what he would have continued to do if he were still alive. Ade, we love you. The world will never be the same without you. Welcome to the Lisa Congdon Sessions, a podcast for creative folks about living and working with more intention, curiosity, and joy. I'm your host, Lisa Congdon. Friends, I'm so excited to introduce you to my latest sponsor, Storyblocks. Storyblocks is a stock footage company who exists to help you bring all your stories to life without sacrificing your vision due to time or budget or resources. Every creator who does any kind of video production should have a Storyblocks membership. And here's why. They are changing the face of stock footage with more diverse and inclusive content in their library to help creators continue to tell their unique and authentic stories. Their restock program is their commitment to increase representation in stock media by hiring creators from marginalized communities to create content that is more reflective of the diverse world we live in. They are also committed to access by making their footage affordable, offering unlimited downloads, a royalty-free demand-driven library, and enterprise licensing. 
focused on speed, diversity, and accessibility, I highly recommend checking them out at storyblocks.com slash That's storyblocks.com slash I am so thrilled today to share this interview with Bill Strickland, editor-in-chief of Bicycling Magazine. Bill's equal passions for cycling and writing have led to several books, award-winning stories, and leading the magazine into the future. His contributions are profound. More on that shortly. I became friends with Bill in 2020 when he reached out to me to do a story on a fundraiser I had started in which I was going to ride my bike thousands of miles in one year and raise money for a cause I cared about. But then the pandemic hit and I abandoned the project, worried that raising money when people were out of work wasn't the right thing to do. Even though the story died, Bill and I stayed in touch, and he invited me to come to Easton, Pennsylvania, where bicycling is headquartered and where there is a thriving mural community. Just days before this episode was recorded, we met to discuss the details of coming to Easton over Memorial Day weekend in 2022, when the Easton crit race happens. My friend Ade Hogue and I were planning to fly there, paint murals, and ride bikes together, possibly even race the crit. As I mentioned in the dedication, Ade died tragically the following week. I now plan to go to Easton myself in May and paint a mural dedicated to him. Over the last year that Bill and I have become friends, I finally subscribed to Bicycling Magazine. Issue after issue was so different than any cycling magazine I'd ever seen. The diversity reflected in the magazine's pages made it obvious that the magazine had made a commitment to changing the narrative about cycling as a closed, mostly male, all-white sport. I did a little digging and found the magazine's pledge to diversity, equity, and inclusion, published in August of 2020. While many organizations put out such pledges in 2020, bicycling is living it. In this episode, I talked to Bill about leading the magazine through this process and what it has been like for him personally and professionally. I want to thank Bill from the bottom of my heart for his vulnerability in sharing this story. Bill, thank you so much for being with me today. I am so excited to have you on. Yeah, this is real. It's going to be a great conversation. You and I have never talked at length. I'm really excited for this. No, and um, we met because you reached out to me at one point. I was doing a fundraiser in the beginning of 2020 where I committed to ride my bike a certain number of miles and raise money for a local organization. And you wanted to do a story. And then I got breast cancer and the pandemic happened and I ended up not even knowing if it was okay to like go ride my bike outside. That was back in the days when we didn't know like what we could and couldn't do during a pandemic. And I ended up canceling the fundraiser. I still raised a lot of money, but I ended up canceling the fundraiser and that never happened. But we've stayed in touch and have got other projects brewing. So 
Anyway, before we get into the meat of our conversation today, I really just want to hear from you how you got into cycling, like your journey as a cyclist and your journey as a journalist and how and when they sort of converged for you. Yeah, that's a big one, right? Whenever you talk to anyone about their passions. So I was just talking with someone the other day and I remembered when I learned to ride a bike, it was really late. I was like eight years old. And my father basically just put me on the bike and uh, pointed me down a hill and let go. And I remember, uh, of course, I crashed. But before I crashed, I had this period where I was going down the hill and that sort of combination of joy and pain, which is what cycling is, was just cemented for me right then. And it, it, it became about freedom. And then when I was older, I came... Uh, I come from a background of sort of horrific child abuse. And when I was older, I latched onto the bicycle as a way to say, you know, I'm out of here. It's, I, I know, I, you know, I, I grew up in the Midwest in a family that I describe as white trash. That's my heritage. Those are my people. And the bicycle was a way to escape that. And I, I don't know how deliberately I knew that, but I certainly knew it instinctually. I didn't know anyone else who rode and my family thought it was weird and they thought I was, you know, a sissy for, you know, putting on these special shorts. And it just, it became, it has given me everything that I have in, in my life. That, that process of where the bicycle took me and the people I met and the places I've been and what it has taught me about creativity and trust and perseverance and failure. It's, it's just been endemic to who I am. And so I can't remember a time when the bicycle wasn't central to my life. And I also love writing with the W, W R. It's funny when I am like voice recording things on my phone or sent, you know, voice recording text messages, I, my phone thinks I'm saying writing with a W R and I'm usually saying writing and it's hilarious. So (laughs) Yeah, that's right. It happens, it happens to me all, all the time. And those came together for me when I saw an ad in 1991 for Bicycling Magazine. And I applied and got the job, really low-level editor job. And I've, with some breaks, I've been in and out and I've been other places. And I was a freelancer for about five years and launched Mountain Bike Magazine, which we used to own. And then I was editorial director of all the Rodale magazines for a bit, but I've been orbiting bicycling since 1991. That's wonderful. Have you ever raced or is cycling always been sort of a, like a hobby for you? I, I, I did race and I, I had a period where I raced quite a bit, a 10, 10 to 15 year period. And I was I actually ended up writing um, a book about it, a, a memoir, which was racing came together for me as a way when I had when I, my daughter was born. She's 23 now. When she was born, I had this deathly fear that I was going to raise her the way I had been raised. And, uh, you know, I'm a cyclist. Right. And so everything revolves around the bike. And there's a local training race here, which is open. It has a lot of professionals in it and people have been to the Olympics and some world champions. And I started racing in that thing. And I scored a point after a few years of trying one point you get, it's a, you sprint for points every three laps. 
And so I try, you know, there were cyclists, women and men who score, you know, like 500 points a season. And I scored one and my daughter at that time was four. And I was like, I scored a, you know, I was telling her that I scored a point. She was like, next year you can score 10 points. And it, it just, it was impossible for me. I knew I couldn't do it, but I thought, oh, if I can score 10 points, maybe I can also get rid of this curse that I, I feel lives within me. And so I spent a, a really intense season trying to score 10 points the next year and wrote, wrote a book about it. And from there, I ended up racing a bunch. And did you score 10 points the next year? I did not score 10 <laughs> points, which was great because yeah. I failed in front of, you know, my daughter and all my friends, I had talked about this and it was something everyone knew I was doing. And that the act of trying so hard and failing was very powerful. Oh failing yeah. Failing publicly. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So what I really want to talk about today is the public commitment that you and Bicycling Magazine have taken since the summer of 2020 to diversity and inclusion. And before we go there, I wanted to offer a little contextual background to listeners who might not be cyclists about why this is so important to cycling, why you and others are making these commitments. And that is because cycling has historically been a very white, very straight, very male sport, in particular, very, very white, and in American culture, very exclusionary to black folks in particular. And while we've all known this to be true, those of us who have been cyclists for many years, it's really only been in the past few years. And then after the George Floyd murder in 2020, it is something that we have no longer been able to ignore, as many in this country and in the world began to confront our personal racism and our collective racist legacy, both as a people, but also as a cycling community. And many parts of the cycling community are doing the same. And I've seen it in particular in the gravel community where I race and am becoming more and more involved. So that's a little bit of the context. Major harm has been done and we are trying to move forward into a different space. And bicycling has been a leader, I believe, in that pledge. So I'm going to read to everybody something you wrote about that commitment in August of 2020 in a piece where you were basically publicly making that commitment. And you said, bicycles and bicycling and bicycling, meaning the magazine, are supposed to be about freedom, joy, the remarkable simplicity and clarity, too little found elsewhere, that we attain when achievement equals the effort we put in, and a curious and mysterious and powerful kind of connected independence that flows between us when we choose to give or accept a draft when we drop an arm to point out a pothole for those behind us, when we say each in our turn, car back to pass that message of care forward from the last rider in a pack to the first, when we wave or nod to a cyclist rolling past us in the opposite direction, when we get some grease on our hands or we give a spare tube to help out a stranded cyclist we've never met before, when we help someone at work get started commuting, when unplanned, we end up sharing the most intimate stories of our lives on a long ride. When we comfort someone who has crashed. And by the way, just reading that gives me chills because it feels so true for me. My life's work, you said, my first published piece about bikes appeared in 1983 in a student newspaper, has been dedicated to helping others discover and explore these ideals. Yet... 
As our national trauma and pain brought our society to a reckoning with systemic racism and racial injustice in a way that feels like a chance for epochal change, it became clear to me how, in a vital way, I failed to fully uphold those ideals and how tragically cycling as a culture, sport, and industry has failed Black America. So in a minute, we can talk more about the commitments you made and how they're going But take me back to the summer of 2020 and talk about what it was like for you as a white cisgender man to make this realization, to write this public statement, and to make this huge commitment on behalf of the organization that that you lead. So for me, you know, first, right, this is obviously bigger than me, right? Of course, yes. So that said, for me... And I think it's important to acknowledge this as I talk to people, the personal impact of this, right? Not to be selfish about it, but this is where a lot of good can stem. For me, it was heartbreaking. I I realized, you know, we've already talked about why cycling is so important to me and that I I owe my life to cycling, everything I have. And I've seen so many people change their lives through cycling, you know, they, they, they get fit or they find a community or... You know, they, they, it's, it's just, it's a miracle machine, right? And so I've held that as, it's just been this deep belief that I've had that if I could just get everyone to ride, the world would be a better place. But you know what? I'm going to do it one person at a time. And that was my life's mission. And I felt that I was succeeding at it. And then, you know, post-George Floyd, I, I realized that I had just abysmally missed a big part of what that mission should have included. And I, you know, I just don't, I was, I was really like heartbroken. Like I had moments where I was like, I've dedicated my life to this and I, I missed it. How could I miss it? What happened? What went wrong? And I, you know, it's, it's one of the things I love about bikes is we're all equal. You know, you go, you go on a group ride and there's a doctor and there's a landscape person and, you know, it's, and there's old and there's young and there's women and, and the, you know, there are various races as well. And I had just, I was like, oh, well, when we're on the bike, we're equal. But what I, as I started actually talking to friends and reaching out to the more people in the black community, what should have been apparent to me became apparent, which was it's not equal getting on the bike getting to the bike, getting to a bike shop, just feeling that you can ride or going through neighborhoods alone. It's not equal at all, at all. It's not even close. Right. And so it's, I, you know, I had, look, I had a racist point of view in the way that I was like, okay, well, if we're all on the bike, it's all okay. That, and that's the systemic racism, right? That's not like an active, this type of person isn't good enough, but it was, it was, how we've all been raised, right? The culture we've been raised in. And if, unless you worked very hard to overcome that, or I suppose we're very lucky and had experiences that showed you otherwise, it was distressingly easy to get to the year of the George Floyd death without having to confront it for certain people, me among them, you know, a a white middle-aged male. And I, I just knew if, if we, and, and along with that, I felt, I, I saw that, in ways a little bit synonymous with bicycling. I've just been here for so long. I saw that bicycling had let so many people down, so many people. And 
we started talking to our, the staff about it and we have an amazing staff and they, they also, you know, they had come to the same, we just love cycling so much here that the realization was easy. Everything after that was hard, but the realization was easy. Yeah. So you don't have to go into, you know, a detailed list, but talk about after that moment and you're talking to your staff and before you even sort of started to do the work, what specific commitments did you make? And after that, let's talk about how they're going. Yeah. So we can't, this was the hard part, right? Like what are the actually actionable commitments that are going to make a difference that you can also do just sort of functionally, but also like some of the stuff we wanted to do, it turns out that like legally, it's just really hard. And we, you know, we, we maybe talk about that later because it's it's really fascinating. As people who are committed to change, it can just it 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 goes slower than you want it to. And that's I think that's something we talk about a lot. Is this is we've started here. That's where we are. We've started, and we need we need to have the same perseverance. You know, we have on a when we're out on a terrible gravel ride, and you're like, this is this is never going to end. You just have to keep going. You keep going. Uh, so one of the first commitments we made was like, we just looked around and we were like, what's representation for a media company? That seems to be the easiest one, right? Let's, how many black cyclists are we showing? How many, um, and then this, you know, this expanded, how many people from the trans cycling community are we showing? And, and, and so we started looking at that and we were okay. It was not acceptable, but it was not as bad as I had feared. Because I, when I, you know, just thinking about it, I was like, oh, boy, cycling is, it's a, it's a white dude's party. What are we like? And we actually did, we had, we dedicated a few staffers to do a survey of all of our content and all of our images. And, you know, we had always tried. So there's a little bit uh, history here going back maybe 10 years ago, Leah Flickinger, who's now our executive features director, came to bicycling and then she got into a position where she was going to be the features editor. And I was one of the lead editors, or maybe the editor in chief at that point. And I remember talking to her being like, we need to hire more women. We got to get to 50, 50 women on staff. And mostly she, she and I made a really concerted effort to do this. And it took years. It took much longer than we thought. And the, you know, the reason is that when we would uh, advertise an open position, the first wave you get is like white dudes, right? Who are super qualified and they're great. And so we would have to do this extra work to reach out and find qualified women. And they're there. It's not that they were any less qualified. It's just that a lot of them just were just like never thought to apply or they didn't think they belonged at bicycling. And so we ended up making some really great hires. Gloria Liu is one who has since gone on to work for outside and she's a freelance writer she was not, we were her first job in publishing. She was, had like quit finance and I think was working at like a ski, a, a ski area somewhere. And she was fantastic. You know, she as she got a job at outside, right? So we knew it was going to be hard to try to expand. So we had that, we had that background and, we, you know, we'd done this before just with gender, right? So we knew it was possible. We knew it was also going to be hard. So I just prepared, the staff and I prepared to take extra steps to try to find 
Black writers, W-R-I-N. We were particularly already really off in a, on a good direction with our photographers. Amy Wolf, who's our photo director, had been doing a really good job about diversifying who was shooting. And then we started to try to expand people who could be in photo shoots for us and test writers and subjects that we wrote about. And it, it was also at that moment in, in George, the you know, right after George Floyd happened, I think a lot of places were making a big effort and, you know, I don't want to say it wasn't authentic, but there was just everyone in the media world was reacting and it was for a lot, it was just a, rea- a reaction. So a lot of the people we were reaching out to at the time were getting like 10 requests. And so we were just one and, you know, it was hard to even start to try to shift, but we did it and we, and we, we stuck with it and we made some really deliberate efforts. You know, one was we did almost an entire issue dedicated to this. And we had, I think, you know, five different black cyclists on the cover and they all, they all wrote directly about the racism that exists Mm. in cycling. And that, you know, that was a big, that was a big, hard Mm. issue for us to do because at the time we are primarily a white staff as well. Right. And so very aware of that and try and trying to, to let them be centered as opposed to like, you know, here's, here's a white editorial staff, you know, telling our audience what they should think about race, trying to actually let the black cyclists mm. speak. Yeah. And, um, you know, when I look back on it, it was, it was scary in a way because I, I was afraid of making mistakes and doing something that would make everything worse. And I, you know, I, I knew there would be people in our audience who would not like what we were doing, which is true. Yeah. I want to talk about that a little bit later. Um, I get about a letter a week from someone who hates it. And it was also just the moment we were in. It's just like the stakes were so high in that year because we really did. I think all of us who were invested in this sense that, oh, this, we can change this. This can happen. Like it's here. Like it's time. And so we we were, everyone just really went all in on this. And it it was one of the hardest periods I've been in publishing more than 30 years. And it was one of the hardest periods of my professional life, but also the most rewarding, certainly. Mm -hmm. And it ended up, so we, we, I also am the editorial director for Runner's World and uh, Leah Flickinger, who works on bicycling also does features for runner's world. And we, we want a Pulitzer prize with mm. runner's world for a story about Ahmaud Arbery, which was called 12 minutes in a life. Mm. And that was, that's the first Pulitzer prize. I never thought I would win a Pulitzer prize wow. in my career. Right. It, and it's the first Pulitzer prize for Hearst magazine. And we did it, you know, yeah. we, right. Amazing. And part of what I admire about what you're doing is that, you know, here we are over, a year later, and it's still every issue. This isn't, I think for a lot of organizations, there were these sort of like explosion of, you know, content or commitment, and then it has waned or is no longer existent. And I think what I'm excited about with what you're doing, and you're not alone, there are a lot of organizations that are also doing this, is that it is part of how you operate now. This isn't, you know, something that is sort of behind the scenes or that um, was going really well at first and now has died off. 
it's it's like this is who you are now and it's very clear so as i said i've been really impressed with your commitment and it really rings through in every issue you know and it's not just features on black prose but also what i love is this like everyday folks right all bodies all skin colors all genders represented in so many different ways in the magazine What's it been like for you to, as you said, you know, these people are out there, we're all out there riding bikes, but marginalized folks haven't necessarily been part of the conversation or been featured. So what was it like to go out and find these folks and bring them into the fold of your magazine? And what is that, what does that continue to be like? Right. It's been uplifting. I mean, it's been, we because our mission, you know, is to get everyone a bike and to find all these great stories, you know, it's like, here's the interesting thing. It's the right thing to do, right? There's that. There's like a moral reason to do this, but you know what? It also makes the magazine better. It makes it richer and it makes it more fun to read. And it expands everyone's idea of what's, what's going on in cycling. So it's, it's, there's just like energy to it. That's amazing. And then the, to discover all these people and hear these stories. So it hasn't, you know, at, at the same time that it takes extra work to do, it's also, we feel like we're telling these stories that are just astounding and are, are really reaching audiences. You know, I mean, we we have more data than we've ever had about what stories really connect with audiences. And we, we see that, it, here's what's great. It depends on how good the story is. You know, like early on, we were like, all right, if we're only going to do sort of issues driven journalism, if every, if the only time we feature a black cyclist or a heavy cyclist or a trans cyclist is when it's about, say, trans rights, we've failed, right? Right. Like we just need to do a, it's a great story that features a trans cyclist. And it's, it's kind of incidental, right? And so if that's just a cyclist out there who's doing something cool. And what we see is when the story is really good, the audience connects with it. And so it, it doesn't work to just say like, okay, well, you know, throw, you know, throw these five types of cyclists in and we're good. Like that's a terrible approach. Right. And I, no one, no one should do that. It's, it's all the things that make a great story a story have to exist for it to work. And that that's where the effort is. It's not so much like, oh, how do we find a black cyclist who's into gravel? Like that actually is harder than, you know, that what turned out to be harder than we thought we, we did. But then it's like, what's the great story that this person has? And at that point, it's just journalism. You're just doing good journalism. And so that that first part, you can't stop there. It's not just about expanding. It's about what are the great stories that people are going to love. And how do you find those stories? I mean, what what do you, I mean, I'm, I guess in some ways it's probably not different than how you found stories before. You're just using different filters. But how are you finding those folks that we read about in your magazine? Yeah, so this is great because it it is not different. But what happens in journalism is, you know, you're like, all right, well, we got this, you know, we got this great story idea about a, a, a traffic, uh, you know, someone who's injured in traffic, or we have this great story idea about someone who won this race, or we heard about this frame builder and it seems really compelling. And you go to the writers, you know, you go to the fact, cause you know, you have a relationship, right. And you're like, we know that we know writer X is going to do this. They're, 
she or he is great at this kind of story. And it would be great. You know, like the magic happens. You put a writer or a photographer who's good at a certain thing together with a certain subject and your chance of, of success is really high. But what, what that does is, you know, you sort of like, here's our stable of writers and here's our stable of photographers. And so that's where it really started was just getting out there for my influences. I, you know, I, I, I looked at my Instagram feed, the people I was following when all this happened. And I was like, wow, this is it. This is a racist feed. Mm-hmm. I'm, it's not, you know, 90% of the people I'm following are white. And that kind of realization, I, you know, I, I talked before about how, how horrible I felt. And that, that kind of realization was going on. Yeah, you know, I don't want to speak for the rest of the staff, but I think we all realize like we just need to like, we need to widen our funnel and bring in more. And at that point, we all just like re- reached out to more people. And it's been, it's just been, you know, we found some incredible writers, photographers. And I, I ride with a couple groups in Philly. Team Cycling Royalty is one and um, Kings Rule Together and Queens Rule Together. And they're you know, primarily Black cycling groups, Muslim. And, you know, they're like, hey, we heard about this. Hey, we heard about that. And so it is the thing we always used to do. But for me, it was just so easy just to do like the bicycling lunch ride every day, which, you know, would be, I would say, we, you know, we have, we would have some Latinx riders and maybe some Asian riders, but we would, you know, they were very rare that we had black riders. And so it was just like, the things that I did were keeping me in this bubble mm-hmm. without even my, I did, you know, without even my consent. Right. I just I kind of went along with it because it's easy. And that's what I would say is don't let it be easy. Like get, get out, like expand, expand your world. And for, for people who live in cities with a more diverse population, I think that sounds ridiculous. Like, just go like, why do you only ride with white people? But you know, we have readers, you know, somewhere in Indiana or, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know where, I mean, this is an example. I say that because I'm from Indiana, so I can make fun of it, where it's just not the reality that the, a riding group will include black cyclists. And so it's, they're not actively doing that, right? But they're not actively doing anything else. So I am sure, and I think I, I know this to be true because I follow you on Instagram and you've talked about it before. I am certain you get pushback from readers um, and you've probably lost subscribers. So talk about what that's looked like and also what it's taught you about doing this work. So I have a very, I don't want the people who disagree with us to leave the brand or to leave cycling. I want them to catch up. Like, come on, come on. This is where we're going. You know, it's like a ride to me. Like, this is where the pack is going. Come on, I'll help you up. If you're back there, I'll help you. And, you know, if you want to turn around and do your own thing, okay, but you come back anytime and I'll help you get back. I think there are a lot of white men, particularly, right? I think this is a white male problem in large large part, who feel that because they're not actively racist, that they're not contributing to the problem. And I think it, 
from what I can tell from the letters and from the exchanges I've had, and I try to engage people in dialogue, they feel like they're being accused of something that they're not doing. And they just have, they have real trouble accepting the idea of systemic racism and that you can be, you know, your actions can be racist without your, without your intention. And and I, I think for some people that just is so difficult I think there are certainly there are people who, you know, who are active racists, right? I find very few of them in the cycling space. I think it's more people who are just like, you're saying that about me and that's not true. I'm not racist. Anyone can ride with me. I'll ride with anyone. And I'm like, dude, man, that's where I was. And that's wrong. You're not, there's more to that. So I get about a letter a week. Our subscription rates, however, are not reflected. There's not this big, there's not this big drop off. We're not, you know, losing a significant part of our business. People like what we're doing and they they like the content by and large. I got a great letter the other week. It was from someone who said, like, I waited a year to make sure you meant it. And now I just wanted to say kudos to you. I thought it was a great letter. It was a, a white woman doctor. Mm. Who, wrote, who wrote, I think from Michigan. I thought it was a great letter. I, I was so glad that she waited a year. She didn't believe us, right? I thought that was cool. That's just so interesting. What advice do you have for other publishers, companies, nonprofits, businesses, big or small, who want to make this sort of commitment? What must you be willing to do as a leader to make a commitment like this and follow through with it? That's a, That's a great, great question. Right, because the last answer is a really uncomfortable one. So first, you've got to mean it. You have to mean it. If you're doing it because you're trying to get out of the crosshairs of a certain segment or because you you did something really dumb and you're trying to atone for it. If you're just doing it for that reason, man, it shows, right? It's so transparent, right? It just shows. So you better mean it, or else it's almost I think it's almost better just to stay, stay out of this. If you don't let everyone else make the change. Right. And then, you know, see, see, see where you are later. But if you don't mean it, it's just, it's going to look weak and you're not going to find those great stories. And it's just going to be, you know, okay, well, they showed of the five cyclists, they found a black cyclist, you know, but the story won't be compelling. Right. So find those compelling stories that fit and that are great, 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 great content. That's what matters. The second thing I would say is it's slow and it's hard and you're going to make mistakes and you just, you've got to be willing to hope that the the people you're working with understand that you're moving in the right direction and you're going to make mistakes as you do this, you're going to, and there's, if your goal is to not make mistakes, you're not going to be trying enough things. And the last thing, and this is the uncomfortable one, which is where I am now, I think ultimately the goal is to get out of the way. You know, I think a lot about the fact that I should not be the face of bicycling any longer. And it's something I'm actively working toward is how do we put some new leadership in there and, you know, identifying people and working with staff to get uh, I just, it shouldn't be me. It should not be me. I love my job and I love cycling and I'm going to stay involved with the brand. You know, I'm the editorial director of, you know, the, we call it the enthusiast group here at Hearst. It's a really great group. It's Rudder's World and Bicycling and Popular Mechanics and Best Products. And I love that job. 
but I, sh- you should not be talking to me about this, right? I mean, the fact that this is great. I love talking to you. I'm glad we're getting this chance. I'm glad that I have, that I was in a position where I could help the brand start to make this pivotal change. I shouldn't be here at the end of it. Right. This isn't about you being a white savior. This isn't about you. And you recognize that. But oftentimes it is using your platform and your position of power in whatever industry you're in to kind of spearhead something in a way that folks of color can't do. So... Right, right. I mean, look, the publishing is hard right now, right? There's so much consolidation and titles falling apart. And I've, I'm good at it. I have 30 years of experience and I love innovating and I have a lot of value in, in leading, you know, groups of publishing. And so that's, it's not just like, you know, in the same way that it would be, um, you know, I guess virtue signaling is what people call it, just to go out and be like, just find a black cyclist and we'll put them in the story. That's fine. As opposed to finding someone with a great, a black cyclist with a great story, you know, in this similarly, you can't just like put someone at the head of a publishing entity like this. Right. And so if that, you know, when I was saying, when I talk about it's slower and it takes longer than you think, like you just have to be like, this is where we're going Let's make sure we're always getting there, but let's get there. And that's what I think, you know, a lot of times, you know, on social media, when there will be these like things that just kind of blow up and there will be like these cries for change, just like urgent, this needs to change now. I'm aware that sometimes you can be inside that thing and be like, we just, we just can't do it now. Like, here's what we can do. And we're going to get there. And, you, you know, I just try to figure out if the people mean it. Like, are they really, is it a, a legitimate and authentic response toward change? And I can always kind of tell when that's happening, mm-hmm. but I feel, I've, I feel in ways, you know, I, I just see sometimes, especially publications or, you know, certain celebrities, I guess, even will get, they'll just get in a spot where there's like, there's a call for change just becomes so overwhelming and it can be hard to change things. You know, we've had some pro cyclists who said some things that people in the cycling community thought were racist, you know, in the past year or so. And I know that the teams and sponsors associated with those cyclists are having, it's difficult to do everything they would like to do. And there's a lot of discussion that goes on and it can be frustrating from the outside, really frustrating. Like, why can't you just make a change? But it's, there, you know, it gets, it's hard. There's legal and financial and the pace of change is slow. Right. But one foot in front of the other, (laughs) I'm going to link to the article that you wrote back in the summer of 2020 in my show notes that has your commitment. So people want to read that in full or subscribe, obviously to bicycling. One last question. Have you noticed that your, or do you have any data on your readership and whether or not that's changed as a result of you're having more diverse content? It, it is, um, the signs are good, right? It's getting more diverse. It changes so slowly as a, as a um, giant entity, right? It's like turning a yacht. It just takes forever. Uh, when I came to bicycling, it was like, it was like a, the staff was like, uh, there's a dude fest, right? And the readership, I think at the time was like 90, over 90% male. And 
it took forever to get that down, you know, to like 75. And then it took even longer, like digital, digitally, it's like 50, 50. It's great. Uh, it just, it just takes so long, but yeah. So yes, things are moving in the right way. And what I tell people, you know, what I tell my black cycling friends now, I'm like, you know, you got to support me, man. Like I'm still in business here. Like you, you, you got to subscribe. And, you know, they, they get it. They're like, yeah, it's not, you're not like a, a social change group. You're like a business, but you know, they're also like, give, you give us something we want to read and we will. And it's, it's a, I, I love being able to have these really frank exchanges with the people I know, you know, it's so, it can go so wrong in public. Right. But with the people, you know, you, you can, you can be like, Hey man, I want to keep my job. Like I, I need people to subscribe and it makes sense to that. Right. But if this were like, you know, you don't want your like public platform to be like, we're only doing this if it makes money. That's a terrible statement, right? It's a terrible position to have, but when you're, it's amazing how what one-on-one you can say things that are meaningful and have them understood. Yeah. And it, and it also, points to the fact that I think a lot of folks probably had really good intentions to change the organization in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion. But because change happens so slowly, they maybe said, well, we tried, but it's too hard, or they gave up in some way. And I'm very inspired by how, while the change is slow, you and your staff have not given up and you continue to make this happen. And so for that, I want to thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Great talking to you about this. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much for sharing your story. Again, I'll link to all things Bill and Bicycling Magazine in the show notes so that you can follow along. Thanks again. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Editing of this podcast by the amazing Gabe Garber, Thanks to Nick Lambert for the original music and to my amazing team at the CoLoop Podcast Network. Please subscribe to the Lisa Congdon Sessions on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy what you hear, leave me a review. You can follow me on social media at Lisa Congdon and at the Lisa Congdon Sessions. I hope you'll join me for future episodes. Have a magical day, everyone. <laughs>